Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. I'm so lucky today to have retired Colonel Sean McBride back with me. Thank you for being here, Sean. I appreciate you. Yeah, I'm honored to get a second chance, Big. Thank you. Yeah, so this is the second time you've been on, and one of the reasons I have you on is because you are uh, very much a distinguished leader um, in the community and did amazing work when you were in the military, and then you went on and um, I know you've done several tours around the world in Somalia, Iraq, Korea, Japan, Germany, and then you went on and um, served in a leadership post at UCLA and USC, and I know you're in the private sector now, and every one of those positions, you're in leadership roles, and I really, really want to tap into today just talking about leadership, and um, specifically, I wanted to talk about psychological safety, and we'll get into that, and there was some out of that psychological safety and why it's so important to have that when you're in a leadership role and that psychological safety is actually is, is absolutely critical in, when you're in a leadership position in any organization um, in creating a successful organization and a team so can if you if you can go into that a little bit and um what is psychological safety you know, we, I think we can credit uh, Dr. Amy Edmondson from Harvard with coining that phrase and, and some research she was doing. And I've read a lot of her stuff. I've seen it. She's got at least one TED Talk and probably more and some other videos. But I would encourage anybody that's interested in psychological safety to dig into some of her work. She's clearly the expert. But really, it's just psychological safety is just having the confidence to speak up uh, within a group. Or and I think in our case, we're talking about primarily at work. But being accomplished that you can speak up and without any fear of being uh, uh, getting yourself in trouble, being made fun of, uh, being embarrassed, being punished, and uh, just being able to be a contributing part of the team. And can you give me some good examples of why psychological safety is important? And if you can think back on some uh, on some times, I'm going to ask you. And I'm kind of go. I'm going to go into kind of three levels with you here. Um, was there any time in your career in the military that you had a leader that didn't, I guess, didn't push psychological safety? And tell me how that worked out for your organization and why it had uh, poor outcomes because of it. Yeah. Well, let me tell you that when you say the, the importance of it. One thing that I've always done uh, in leadership positions is I, I've taught myself to keep my emotions in check. And, you know, my wife will even tell you I've done it to a fault now. You know, she says I have like, two emotions, anger and sleep. But uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's true or not. But, and, and it's because you, what, you can't shoot the messenger. Okay, you need to be, as a leader, you need to be able to accept bad news. And, uh, and even if you're panicking on the inside, you need to be able to very calmly work through the problem and, uh, and, and maybe even get the team together and get their input on how to solve the problem. So I think that that's one aspect of psychological safety is being predictable so that you're uh, and calm so that your subordinates, so your teammates know they can come to you with problems and you're not going to overreact. Uh, that's very, very important. But yeah, in, in, in my background in the Marine Corps, there's been a probably more than a handful of times where I worked for uh, leaders that, that were intimidating, uh, that were uh, maybe a little arrogant, and uh, 
and that the, the Marines uh, and, and the officers in the unit did not feel that psychological safety. And so they did fear um, speaking out. And, and what's even worse, a lot of times they would not support one another. You know, so if, if, if one guy's in the, in the uh, firing line of the boss, then that means that I'm not, you know, so I'm just in the way low and let the other guy take it. And it just totally erodes that sense of teamwork and synergy. And uh, what I've always done is, at, at least at my level, try to instill that that sense of psychological safety in my organization. And then if I didn't have that with my boss, I just tried to shoulder that for the for the rest of the team, so that you know they didn't have to worry. The, the folks that worked for me, they didn't have to worry about that. And how did you do that, Sean? Like, how did you instill psychological safety with your unit you know it's it's actually it's not that hard you know and, and it's first of all i think you need as a leader you need to show that you're vulnerable and you need to admit that you don't know all the answers that you're not the smartest guy in the room and you need to need to admit your mistakes and you need to approach each problem or each um exercise that you're working on each project as a learning opportunity so rather than going in there and saying this is what we're going to do you come in there you get the team together and say hey what do you think anybody got any good ideas on how to solve this and i've always you know i i like to lead by getting the guys together by by gaining consensus you know you can't always have consensus but i think if you can get the guys together and just toss out ideas and then you know some ideas just aren't going to be good ideas but it gets you thinking. And as long as you don't pounce on people and let them know they can say some things that maybe aren't even, you know, what do they say? No such thing as, as a, as a stupid question. And, and, and really, really do that and also protect them. You know, you, you can't from their peers, you know, you gotta make sure that nobody's pouncing on them from the, from the side either, but really by just doing that, it, it happens. And they it'll take a little time for them to get confidence in you, but, once you demonstrate it a few times, then it, it just comes uh, naturally. And one of the things that's very different than your environment than other people's environment, you're in a, in some situations that you had, you were in environments where, where life, it was life or death. And so how did you plan for a mission? Like when you were in Iraq, how did you get people together and plan for a mission? And what was that process like? Detailed. You know, for, for, for one thing, you know, you, you, you gather all the information you can and, you know, there's, a, there's actually a, a Marine Corps planning process or a military decision making process that you go through. It's a, about a five or six step process where you you'll, you'll be given a mission and told to do something. And so you'll read that mission statement in detail. You will gather all the information that you can, all the intelligence that you can, and then you start a process where you, you frame the problem. You make sure that you understand what that mission is, what you are tasked to do. And then you'll come up with a series of tasks for the your subordinate units. And then what you'll do is you, um, you start coming up with different options on how to accomplish the mission. And, and, you know, this process can be very short or can take several days, depending on the time frame and the, and the uh, significance and the size of the mission. But then ideally you'd come up with maybe three different potential courses of action. You would compare them uh, against each other, maybe have a little bit of a war game where you uh, go back and forth with what, what you want to do and how you think the enemy will react. And then you choose one, you either pick one or you, 
you pick a hybrid where you say, we'll go with course of action one, but we'll make these changes to it. And then you turn around and, and you execute it. So it's a, it's a very well thought out detailed process, but it, it works. And how do you, how do you get the men and women that were on, that were in your command to buy into that psychological safety? I know that probably takes some time because you have people from all different uh, environments and they grew up in different situations. They all come from different parts of different aspects of society where they're maybe not as trust as much, or they come from organizations where they didn't have that psychological safety. How did you build that in the unit? Yeah, you know, I think about that because can you imagine, you know, getting out of bed every morning thinking, man, I can't wait to get to work to get the crap beat out of me by the boss or get made fun of by my workmates or something like that. You know, that's just, uh, that's just soul crushing, you know? So uh, I think it, for me, it would start from the time I pulled into the parking lot. And there was days when I, you know, I'm tired, I'm, I'm in a bad mood or whatever. But the second I stepped out of that truck or that car and I saw a, a Marine walk by, I was very positive. You know, more Marine. And how you doing? And we would talk for a minute. Because the, the leader's tone sets the tone for the entire unit. So if the boss gets out of the car, walks into the building, he's angry and looking down or scowling or snapping at people, then the word gets out, you know, oh, you know, steer clear, it's going to be a bad day. But if, if, if you're motivated, even, and I'll tell you, even false motivation is contagious. And so if you're upbeat, you can kind of set that tone, but then you need to, as a leader, you need to be consistent and you need to follow through and you need to every single time you, you get the bad news or uh, you, you you've got a problem that you have to deal with. You've got to stay calm and you've got to consistently let your uh, subordinates know they can, they can come to you uh, with bad news or they can actually come to you with suggestions and that sort of thing too, that you can um, uh, work through with them and, and, you know, not snap their head off if you don't like what they have to say, but it, it takes some consistency, but I've always found that it didn't take long to, to win over the confidence and, uh, and, and really, you know, turn, turn around the, the culture. Did you ever have a situation where you were trying to build um, psychological safety within your organization, but maybe s some of your bosses supported it and some of them didn't? And so it was giving mixed messages. And how did you deal with that? Or how do you deal with something like that? Yeah, you know, and like I, like I mentioned previously, I, man, I would work hard to really try to shelter my team from the boss if the boss was the kind of person that didn't allow for psychological safety it was intimidating or kind of a bully or something like that and uh so i would i would actually try to limit the time that my guys had to, had to interact with them and certainly like if you had to brief something you know a lot of times you'd have to bring in your experts to actually do the briefing uh, but i would be there with them always and i would uh, intercept the hard questions or if, if it was going bad i would step in and say you know that that's on me I, I, you know, I didn't plan this correctly we owe you a better answer or something like that but i was very careful about about protecting uh the team but i you know i never had a boss ever try to prevent me from having an uh psychological safety within my organization so i, I i've never i never experienced that and it seems like the ones that really don't have that sense of um, safety in their organizations. It's, it's almost like they don't realize it, or maybe they just don't care. 
and some some enjoy the intimidation factor, but it's really hard for me to understand why you don't want to work in an organization where people don't want to come to work every day, where they're where they're walking on eggshells. But that's what I've seen it. And can you tell the difference? Like, can you tell the difference with those units that don't have psychological safeties and yours that did? Can you tell the difference between them? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I walked in almost immediately. You know, you'll go to a staff meeting or something, and everybody's quiet. Uh, not a lot of banter back and forth. It's just like they're just waiting, you know, waiting for the boss to come in, waiting for the beatings to begin. And uh, I, I remember once when I was a, a young captain walking into an organization like that, and I was kind of, you know, I have a pretty good sense of humor, so I was kind of joking around before the meeting started, and the people just looked at me. You know, my my peers just looked at me like, what was that? I mean, you just said something that was funny and kind of lighthearted. That's not how we do things here. And I was like, wow, I, what 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 have I just gotten myself into? But then you find out that, you know, the boss was just a very intimidating guy. And it took a, it took a lot of time, a lot of effort on my part to, I guess, you know, to not only earn the trust of your peers, but to real for your peers to realize that I'm certainly not going to do anything to throw them under the bus, which, you know, they were kind of doing to each other sometimes in order to stay out of trouble. So yeah, it's just, just a terrible, terrible situation when that happens. And it's, it's pretty obvious. And then how how did you groom new leaders in your unit? Like, you want to the team if the team works well together. And I think part of psychological safety is is it it's not just like you said it kind of radiates from the leader the leadership down, um, but there needs to be psychological safety also within team members as well, right? So they have, there has to be trust between the team members. So that everybody moves in the right direction, right? That's true, and you know you have to actually really be aware of that, be be sensitive to that. Not only can the guys come to me, but down at the at the lower levels, they got to take care of each other. I mean, and you, you can't have guys that are taking pot shots at their at their buddies or or, or the boys, and you're going to have that. I mean, we're all human, and you get a group of guys together. There's going to be some that are just like that, and so I was always careful to be alert for that and uh pull those guys aside and talk to them about that about backing off and giving everybody a chance and and, and you know and there also is a the personal responsibility for for uh trying to play at a very high level every day and to become an expert in your craft so you know psychological safety isn't weakness you know it's not just looking the other way and, and letting um mis misconduct occur or uh, allowing people to perform at a low level, you have to hold people accountable, but you don't do it. You don't do it in a way that's publicly embarrassing. If you can help it, you know, you pull them aside and, and counsel them, make sure they got the right training and all that other stuff. And if you know sooner, there's going to be some people that just don't make it, that just don't belong in the organization. You got to do what you got to do to get those them to to move on. But there's no there's no reason to do it in a in a humiliating or fear-inducing manner. Did you ever have any peer? Did you ever ever have any worked with when you were in the military? Did you have any peers? And I know this is kind of a loaded question because we talked about this earlier about like, you know, there's very few people in most organizations that create psych psychological safety. But when we look when 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 it's when you look at those organizations critically, the most successful organizations have psychological safety. Did you ever have a peer that you had to pull aside? 
or someone that was a higher rank or somebody of the same rank where you said, oh, I, get, I think I'm going to have to talk to this person because they're going to end up losing their group if, if they don't create a better environment. And can you give me an example of that, how you would deal with something like that? Yeah, you know, and it took a while. When I was a, a younger officer, I, I mean, I didn't even know what psychological safety did. Heck, I probably didn't even know it, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. You know, I, I hadn't heard the term. But for me, it was just always about wanting to be around people that wanted to be there. You know, I mean, part of it, and that starts it with the leader. But yeah, I, I have seen peers that were just just really hard and and yeah, almost kind of bullies and. And when it's someone like that, if, if it's a good friend, I have no problem just sitting down and having a beer with them and talking to them about it and giving them my perspective. But sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And uh, But I've absolutely had bosses that, um, I guess, you know, one, I had a not a very close relationship with, so I just kind of took it, you know, and it was just, it was a really tough couple of years. And that was one of the, one of the guys that I really tried to, uh, separate from my organization so they didn't have to deal with them and then I, I had another boss that we were actually you know friends i mean we, we can go out and have dinner together you know our families could do stuff together but at work he was just a very very hard guy to work with or work for and he was just hard very hard on his staff and i uh, i would go head to head you know and right up to the point of being disrespectful sometimes you know and it just didn't it didn't work <laughs> It was a, it was a hard it was a hard couple of years. And when you went on when you went on to UCLA and uh, USC, you have to obviously you're you're in a student environment, so you have to create that psychological safety. What did you do with those? And was it difficult and challenging when you had people that didn't necessarily buy into that vision? And what do you do when someone doesn't buy into that? Yeah. So the um... You know, I, I guess I had two audiences. I had the, the staff, which were which were young officers, and uh, some some of our civilian staff, and then I had the students. And so, the um, whenever you go into a or, new organization as as the boss, everybody's very guarded. You know, they don't know who this new guy is, and uh, so they want to want to kind of feel you out and see what kind of person you are. So I immediately started doing one on one meetings with with some of the staff and my executive officer he and i just clicked right away and i'm sure there was a, a time where he was kind of checking me out too but he when he realized that uh, what, what kind of person i was he opened up and, and talked to me about some of the challenges we had and so i just addressed them you know just immediately on the spot bring in the, the officers and talk to them so that they understood that i was on their team i, I would support them uh, i may not always agree with them with, with what they, the changes they wanted to make or whatever but i tried to address what was bothering them. And it very, we very quickly ended up with a very tight team. Now the students was a little different because, you know, I'm a Colonel, I'm this old guy, you know, I've been in the Marine Corps at that point, like 36 years or something. And they're, they're young. I mean, they're 18 through 22 year olds. And there's quite a bit of separation between us, you know, in, in a lot of different ways. But what I would do is we had weekly meetings where I would always talk where we'd have the whole battalion together, where I would always start it out with just talking about whatever was on my mind, maybe something that was topical, uh, something that was bothering me, mistakes I had made. And um, I would do it in a very, you know, very calm way, throwing some humor and stuff. And so they started to warm up to me. And then I would just wander the hallways. 
and uh, I, I would see him, see him, and I'd stop and talk to him, or bring him into my office, sit him down and talk to him. And just over time, kind of one and two or three at a time, you just start winning them over, and they realize that I can talk to this guy. I can approach him with a problem. Of course, keeping uh, out of respect for the chain of command, you know, I, I knew there were there were a lot of people between me and those young. Uh, midshipman but i i wanted to have that relationship with him so it just takes time and and consistency and honesty and have you ever had to have you wherever you're in a situation what do you do with somebody that is difficult to manage and nothing seems to work yeah you know and, and it's just like any and i know you've dealt with them because you and i have talked a, a few times about challenging employees you had like anything else you know, I call it like an escalation of force. You, know, you, you talk to them, you sit them down, and you explain to them what what right looks like. You give them a, a path for success. You know, whether you need additional training, you need some counseling, you need some mentoring. Maybe you assign somebody to mentor them. Maybe you do it yourself, and then you give them another chance. If it doesn't if it doesn't work, then you bring them back in, and maybe now we start writing it down. Right? Maybe it's a formal written counseling, and uh, continually trying to stay positive, trying to give them the opportunity to, to, to succeed, but rarely, but sometimes you just come to that point where the, the person's got to go and then you got to make that hard decision, but you've built the case over time and you know, you've got the written counseling, et cetera, and it's just time to move them along. They have to maybe leave the Marine Corps or leave the Navy. And we talked about this. I want to bring this up in uh the aristotle project can you talk about that a little bit it's a it's an amazing project i think a lot of people haven't heard about it but i i i encourage my the listeners today to the podcast to do more research on it because if you want to be a successful leader and you want to lead a successful team or it doesn't really matter what position you are in an organization i think if you follow these rules you can really get a good idea how to be an effective leader and, and have an effective team that meets goals. Can you talk about the Aristotle project? Yeah. And, and I'm not like really super current on it, but I, I've read about it and I know that was at Google and Google, no one's better at data, right? At, at examining data and studying data, gathering it, studying it. And so they were uh, trying to figure out what makes the best team. And they've got all kinds of teams and working groups doing a variety of things across that huge company. And so they started studying it. And at first they, they just couldn't come up with a correlation why some teams were good, some teams weren't doing so good. And it was very difficult, they couldn't figure it out. But over time, as they continued to, to push this um, this project, they, did, they came up with, if I recall, uh, it was two things that successful groups did. And, and, and Fig, if I'm missing some of it, please fill in the blanks. But, one was they were very comfortable speaking. And when the group was together, everybody took turns and, and everybody spoke roughly the same amount. There wasn't one person or one or two people that was, were uh, overwhelming in the conversation. So everybody got a chance. And then um, they were sensitive to each other. They had emotional intelligence. And, and uh, they were very good about um, sensing if somebody had a problem or wasn't feeling well or was upset and they and that started by people sharing showing vulnerability and sharing uh their um uh, you know they're really some some of the most innermost feelings and you know with 
this right away, this makes me think of in our, our um, executive master and leadership class. Remember day one when uh, Dr. Geffner had us do that, uh, draw that um, tornado or whatever it was, that spiral thing on the paper. And we had to, we had to like tell our life story in pictures. And then we all got together in our small groups and we talked about it. And these are folks, you know, you and I had known each other for like two days then. And we're talking about deaths and divorces and, and, and hard decisions and bad decisions and professional challenges. And we were just, we, we were totally vulnerable. And that cemented our, our relationship, I think, across that cohort. And this is kind of what they did at Google. They, they got up and they talked about those challenging things that they were dealing with, either professionally or personally. And, you know, people realize, oh, my God, they're, you know, my, my workmate here has cancer or, you know, his, his mother is dying or something. And it just brought people closer together. So they had that they had that um, uh, emotional intelligence where they really started keying in on how people were feeling and as well as themselves, their own their own emotions. And then their, um, uh, they, they, they were respectful and, and let everybody talk. How did I do? Yeah, and I, 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 what I really like about this, Sean, what you were bringing up is I, I really, I think that when you have an open line of communication and you're trying to solve a problem together as a group, it really, really encourages innovation. It builds trust. And you're kind of getting a lot of out, outside the box thinking. And and I think that's what's really amazing about what Google said and, and what Amy Edmondson identified with psychological safety is that it builds on this, it builds this strong foundation for a team and success. And I know they outlined um, five different steps Google did. Well, uh, and five things and characteristics that make a strong, successful team. And what, what's very interesting to me now is they, they, what they say is that that you know it's important to build that psychological safety as a leader and then it extends outwardly inwardly to actually to the group and then all the group kind of comes together as one and then and then it, they build on that success is that what you kind of over the years is that how your team's built success as well and if you can think about one one successful team or the favorite group of people you ever work with that accomplished an amazing mission how did that team come together, Sean? Yeah, and to answer your first question, yeah, that is, you know, lar largely how, how we did it also. And, you know, you, you learn to rely on one another. Uh, once you get you get that confidence and trust, you know, you always say there's no such thing as a stupid question. And, and uh, so you allow people to ask what, you know, you may think is a stupid question. But, you, you know, you, you allow those questions to be asked because, you know, I always tell guys if you – if you have a question, there's probably somebody else in the room that's wondering the same thing. So, so you'd be the guy that asks the question. So anyway, just you, you start, you, re, you rely on each other. You become dependable. You know that you can, you, you have each other's back. And, uh, you know, pr probably one of the, the, you know, the greatest groups I ever worked with was the, the staff I had in Iraq. You know, I took over the battalion while we were deployed. And we had Marines spread all over al province. The whole western part of Iraq just in small groups, and uh, I just had a, a great staff. You know, my senior enlisted who was the sergeant major, operations officer, logistics officer, communications officer. I rolled into an organization where I was 
absolutely not the smartest guy in the room because these guys had already been deployed and I had to, it's kind of an emergency situation where I had to replace a guy in the middle of it. And first, the way they came together to get me smart and I was really uh, in a in position of disadvantage. But then as I got my confidence up and my situational awareness, how they supported me in my decision-making and uh, you know, I would make, no decision without bringing the team together and wargaming it, as we would call it, and bouncing ideas off each other and and uh, arguing about which which was a, a better decision. But at the end of the day, you know, coming to a consensus, and you know, even if they didn't agree with the decision, you know, you, you slap the table and you open up the door and you walk out and, and you do it, you execute it, and uh, you know, under just terrible conditions. But it was it was pretty inspiring to be around those guys you know i wanted to ask you about that that as a leader that's probably got to be one of the most stressful situations you can be in how did you deal with the stress yourself um were there times where, where you had to you were alone obviously and how did you deal with that stress yourself yeah so one thing i've always done is exercise okay so uh, even when when we're deployed you know, it's kind of cool watching the, the innovative ways Marines come up with to work out. And so there's always something, there's always some way to do some pull-ups or, or, you know, push-ups and, and other things. Now we've got all the, you know, the TRX equipment, you know, that you just tie to the side of a truck and you can get in a pretty good workout. So uh, every day I would work out and I do today still. And I, I think that's a lifesaver. You know, another thing I've done uh, my whole adult life is try to get a good night's sleep. And when you're deployed, you can't, you often can't do that. But when you can, I try. And I think that's, I think that makes a big difference because I think you can, you know, I find, you know, when I go five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 days on four hours of sleep or less, you know, you're almost, it's almost like you're drunk, you know, and you're starting to stagger around and you just can't make decisions. And so, uh, you know, the guys tease me when I was younger, you know, they'd be out partying on a Wednesday night and I'd be like, no, man, I'm going to, I'm going to hit the rack early because I got to, got to work tomorrow. So, exercise uh rest you know, take care of that and then i'd always try to eat and healthy so those are just taking care of my body but then you know you got i rely on my friends man you, you get you get guys scared and you can just really uh you know bitch to each other and, and work out problems i've always been fortunate where i've had a group of friends and i, I include you in that group where you can just give them a call or if you're deployed, you know, take a walk or just sit down and have a cup of coffee and just kind of, kind of talk through stuff. But uh, I think it's really important that you don't, you don't keep it bottled up because eventually it's going to blow and you, you don't want that to happen. Really nothing. It's funny, nothing earth shattering there. It's all kind of stuff we all hear over and over again. You just, you need to do it. I, I was just going to say, you, you, we hear it all the time. Is you have, you have to make it actionable and you have to do it. You can't just say you're going to do it. You actually have to do it. And let me ask you this. How did you become a leader and what steps and advice would you give someone else to prepare to be a leader? So you didn't just, I mean, you moved up in your organization and it's not easy to achieve the rank that you did. How did you prepare to become a leader? Like what advice would you give other people if they wanted to move up in an organization? You know, when I'm, when I'm talking to Marines, uh, I used to have the opportunity to speak at some of the, um, enlisted education courses and i'd always ask them you know are leaders born or made and i would make them answer the question and there's always a debate you know some say born some say made and uh, 
I was, you know, I, I don't know yet. You know, I, I think some people are born with leadership abilities and other the kids you see on the playground with the football, picking the team, you know, taking charge. And, and so and they didn't have any leadership training. But then you see other guys that are just very introverted and not confident, go on to be just tremendous leaders through training and, and opportunity. And so in the Marine Corps, what's awesome is everybody, you're expected to be a leader. You know, we always say if, if two Marines walk into a room, one of them is in charge. And even if you don't want to be, you, you get sometimes almost thrust into leadership positions. And uh, I could go down the different road. You know, I, I think sometimes I think it's unfortunate that guys can't just stay in, in uh, maybe staff positions or something where they're not expected to continue to seek out leadership positions. But um, so a couple things. Number one is watch other leaders. And, and you know, I'd, I'd even encourage you to take notes and you could draw a line down the middle of the paper and say, okay, here's the good stuff and here's the bad stuff. And those leaders that inspire you, what is it about them that inspires you? Write that down. The leaders that uh, disappoint you or that you don't want to follow, what is it, why? You know, write that down. Don't do that stuff. Do the other stuff. Okay, that's one. And then another thing is um, you can never you can never stop learning about leadership. And you know, I was some of my peers kind of gave me a hard time about taking the executive masters in leadership as an old colonel because like what more could you learn? And I learned every day from you guys. And I, I, it was tremendous. But I I do a lot of reading about leadership. You know, TED talks, uh, podcasts like yours. You know, I listen to all your episodes and, and others. And so um, there's just so much information out there to suck in. So I, I, I would encourage anybody that's going to be that's that's uh, aspiring to be a leader to take advantage of all those resources. And then finally, lead. Just take those opportunities at work, whether it's something as small as just running a, a small working group, or maybe somebody's got to take charge of the company picnic or Christmas party or something. Take any opportunity you can to lead because that's how you get better at it. And then um, I think it's good to be your own worst um, critic too, and kind of do an after action after everything you do that you did right or did wrong and try to, try to find out why. And why do you think good leadership is important? I think, you know, whether, and, and I found this, you know, in the Marine Corps and, and in my um, post-Marine Corps career, people want to be led. You know, they, they want they want their boss to be decisive and to be uh, motivational and to be dependable and uh, to, um, to uh, lead with inspiration, you know, not with intimidation. And so um, there's, a, there's a need for leadership. And if you're going to fill that role you might as well be good at it let me ask you this Sean. what do you think is like in all your years of um like i said you you've had a pretty amazing career what are some of the biggest issues you've ever seen or you've experienced that block good leadership you know there's always that confidence issue what is it the um uh, I'm not, no, I can't think of what it is. The um, imposter syndrome. You know, there's there's always that. And even I'm as guilty as anybody. Uh, I, I think I could say any every job I, I've been assigned in the Marine Corps, I took that position thinking, man, I am not qualified to do this. And I'm too young, too inexperienced or whatever. And then you just kind of grow into it. But uh, I, I certainly, I think that is one. And then, and part of it, okay, a second thing is, 
take emulating the wrong leadership qualities. Okay, so a, a, a young a young guy or young gal gets put into a leadership position, and then they just kind of revert back to what they've experienced in the past. And it could be what their parents did. Certainly, it could be what their drill instructor did. And that's certainly a different kind of leadership that really shouldn't be employed anywhere other than a recruit depot. And so they end up, you know, yelling at people and and uh, uh, not having a, a, a psychological safety in their organization uh, because of uh, of their own shortcomings. So that that certainly is something that um, young leaders can be guilty of, and including me. When you were in a difficult situation, or what do you recommend that you do if you're in a difficult situation? You don't know where to go. You, you, you're afraid to. You're afraid to ask. And you don't want to express yourself to the subordinates a lot of times because you just don't know what direction to go, and you may feel vulnerable. What did you do when you were in those situations that, as a leader, and you're like, I don't know where to go with this. You know, I don't know how long I've been this way. You know, but I tell you, I got no problem saying I don't know what to do no problem at all and uh and you don't have to you know if, if you if you're trying to you know give that sense of that you that you're in charge and you have a clue maybe you don't say i don't know but if, what i would do is bring the guys in and say okay here's the problem what do you think we should do and just kind of go around the table and you'll be you'll just be amazed i mean guys are going to have good ideas and and some not so good ideas but um i i, I do this Hell, I'll probably do it tomorrow at my, at my job, and uh, I'll be confronted with something that I just don't know what to do about. But yeah, I've never had a problem saying I don't know, and uh, that contributes to psychological safety. Let me ask you this: what, what? Tell me what your passions are. Why you? What keeps you going every day? I mean, you, you were, uh, you were a lifelong military person, and. Do you have any regrets about joining the military? And you stayed so passionate throughout your whole career. And I know you don't. Um, the reason I guess I'm, I'm talking about this is that it goes back to, um, and, and I'm, I'm going to read off these, um, the five parts of this Google study, because it talks about impact on the fifth, on, on one of the, one of the levels they talked about. And I'm going to mention it because I want people to go back and read it. Cause I think it's significant if you're a leader, but it talks about team members think their work matters and creates change. And I really like that because uh, I think that's probably when you go to work every day, it seems to me based upon my interactions with you that you always had purpose and you had, you were passionate about what you did. Tell me where that passion came from. And did you feel that way all the way up to the end of your career? And how did you keep that fire going? You know, it's funny when, when I first enlisted in the Marine Corps, I came out of boot camp, one unhappy young man. I was like, I have made a terrible decision. And uh, it took me a few months to get over that. I was kind of mad at my dad because he kind of <laughs> shanghaied me in the Marine Corps. But uh, then I just started looking at, at some of the guys that I was serving with. And I, I always say guys, you know, guys and male, female, that's just a term I use, so if I'm not saying anybody. But, um, and he just realized, man, these are just great people. And so, you know, one guy told me, uh, he said, you know, you can go up, up the hill happy or you can go up the hill sad. But either way, we're going up that effing hill. And so that had a lot of in, impact on me. I was like, he's right, I got to change my attitude. And I got I to gotta make the best of this, at least while I'm here in the Marine Corps, expecting I'll just serve for a few years. 
And then being around just those great Marines, that's an inspirational. But then when you get into, start getting into positions of authority, getting into leadership positions, and suddenly now, not only are you surrounded by great young Americans, but they're relying on you. And, you know, oftentimes, again, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but they think you are because you're the, you're the boss. And uh, so they're depending on you. And so that just kind of fuels the fire, you know, the fact that they, that, that they need you to take care of them, to make sure they're trained and equipped and, and uh, you know, uh, able to operate in, the, in a safe environment or as safely as possible and oftentimes not safe environment. So it was that, but then over time, man, I just, I tell you, I just love uh, working with young leaders and helping them become better leaders. And nothing, nothing pleases me more than to see guys that worked for me in the past go on to succeed. I've got guys that, um, that, were, that were junior to me that are general officers now. And I'm just like, I'm so proud of them. And I, you know, I like to think that I, I had maybe some influence in, in their growth as leaders. And so, um, even in, in my, in my current job where, you know, I'm a, a program manager, but I got a, a lot of guys that I work with and, and, uh, I still take that on the, the coaching and the leadership development. I'm trying to make, make them better leaders. So they're more confident in what they do. So it just makes the organization better then. And so really when you ask me what gets me up in the morning, that's what it is, man. Just, helping young leaders become better. How do you conquer doubt? So, uh, you know, tell me how you, tell me some tools or give me some tools that people can bring with them when they, when to deal with doubt. And like you talked about imposter syndrome. Um, can you explain what that is? And I, I think you kind of a little bit, you delved into it a little bit, but if you can be more explicit about what imposter syndrome is, um, it's not, I've only been exposed to that word for maybe probably the last year and a half. And, yeah. but I've been here, I hear it more and more, but can you go into that a little bit? Yeah. I'm, I'm like you, I probably heard the term a year and a half ago, but I've been doing it my entire life. And that's where you imposter syndrome. I don't belong and I shouldn't be here. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm faking it. Like I snuck in here and, uh, I feel that all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm working for a small company that supports NASA at the Kennedy Space Center. I mean, I'm just a knuckle dragon Marine from Butte, Montana. What am I doing here around all these brilliant people? And uh, I go through that every day. But, um, you know, how do I get through the doubt? I think it is, part of it is, I've always had the luxury of being surrounded by really good people. And, um, I suspect that most people do have that if, you know, if they, if they give their teams the chance. And I think that by, again, being humble enough to admit that you're not the smartest guy in the room and asking questions and getting um, some perspective and other people's ideas, I think then you, you get more comfortable that you're making a right, a right decision. And, and then you study, you know, you always want to try to be an expert at your craft. I mean, it, I learn. I literally, I literally learn something new every day, and usually it's like before eight o'clock in the morning. I've already learned something new. I do a tremendous about amount of reading and, and preparing for things at work because I'm every day outside of my comfort zone, and so I, I just have to. I have to get smart, and a lot of it is just sitting down with people. I mean, I've got a series of meetings scheduled this week because I have to present some stuff to some uh, senior leadership 
that I need to get smarter on. So what I'm bringing in is some of the junior guys that are the experts and we're just going to sit down and they're going to teach me what they do. And then I'm going to go, uh, you know, I'm going to go brief it. So that's, I think that's how I uh, overcome the doubt is by getting smart. I get smart by admitting that I need to get smart and I get the smart people in the room to help me. That's certainly one tool. Yeah, I, 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 I want to mention it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like some folks kind of got up because um, um, they've got a lot like all you can see and then Amy Edmund worked at Harvard and Harvard because she's like, I mean, it's a lot of crap with her. It's that your, your audio just went really bad. It just got really distorted. When you, when you, whatever the, the question you just asked, I couldn't even understand it. Um, so, one of the questions I have is, one of the, one of the questions, there you go, that's better now. One of the questions I had, I, I think Amy Edmondson did a great job when she identified psychological safety. Um, and I think you answered a lot of these questions regarding like how you built those in, in organizations. Um, what would you recommend people do to build psychological safety in their own organizations when they're having difficult doing so or there's no psychological safety in the organization they're in yeah and you know it's i think we kind of mentioned this before i mean it's it's really i just don't think it's that hard and it, it takes a little bit of, a little bit of time and not too much time but number one, go in there and be vulnerable, okay? And let people know that um, that you're a human being, you know? And, and you know, as a Marine, you know, we always have this veneer over us, this, this armor that I've learned over time. It's okay to, to talk about personal things and struggles that you may be having. And it's certainly okay, and I said this so many times during this, this session, is to say, I don't know. I need your help. Uh, what, do you, what do you suggest? And then... And you got, you have got to treat people with respect, and you can't overreact to anything. You've got to be calm, even if it's a crisis, uh, to, so that the your your team will be comfortable coming to you. And then you have to enforce that uh, with your with your team too, with your subordinates, to ensure that they're not pouncing on anybody, that they're not bullying anybody. But you, you, it start it starts at the top, and I, I always think an organization kind of takes on the personality of its leader over time. And so when you set that example and you let people know that they're safe to come to talk to you, uh, it, it'll start trickling down because people want it. You know, people want psychological safety. So if, if they see an opportunity to get there, they're going to they're going to go for it. Now, nobody wants to come to work and be nervous or walking on eggshells or afraid of the boss or afraid of their peers. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't think it, I really don't think it's that hard to, to, to build. And I encourage people, like I said, to to read and research more on psychological safety. Those leaders that are listening to the podcast or people that want to be leaders or people in your organization that have the ability to create that in their organization. And and like I said, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about Google's Aristotle, Aristotle project identified five factors of good organizations with good leaders and good and good team outcomes. Number one, psychological safety, which is we've spent most of the podcast talking about that. Uh, dependability, just depending on other teammates that you know they're going to come through and you're all working toward the same goal. Their structure and clarity, you know what the goals are. That all your work has meaning, 
meaning to the team members. And I think that goes to what you were talking about before. I've been pretty fortunate that most of the jobs I've ever had, that they, they have a lot of meaning to me. So it gives me purpose when I wake up in the morning. I actually enjoy going to my job and I know it, it's actually giving back to the community. It's actually making a difference in the world. And then, and then impact that it's, that it has an impact and it's making an impact in the world. And I, I think that I can actually say that that's, I've been pretty fortunate to have that in my work career, in my professional life. Have you had that same experience? Yeah. And so yes, I, I actually wrote those down previously. So we, we've talked a lot about psychological safety, so I won't go there, but dependability, man, that's key, right? I mean, you're, you're not going to have, you're not going to have psychological safety if you've got a team member that you can't depend on. And so that's something that we all need to ensure that we're not letting people down, that we're a man or woman of our word. And if, and if you're struggling or if you're falling behind or on a project, you just tell people, you know, hey, I, you know, I'm not going to hit a deadline. I need some help or whatever. But you can't be that guy that shows up late or without whatever your piece of the puzzle. You remember when I think you and I talked about this with our cohort for EML, you know, we worked together on all those projects. And then we had this, we spun off to do our elective. And I found myself suddenly the oldest guy in the room with all these young uh, master's students and they put us together on a project. And I was so used to you guys where we were just getting together and getting it done. And these young guys, they just used, they were doing stuff differently and putting it off and not showing up or changing, changing times. It drove me crazy. You know, it made me miss our, our team. I'll tell you that. But dependability, the structure and clarity, very important. You know, it, it's, it's such a terrible feeling to go into work and say, I just don't know what to do today. I don't, I don't understand what my tasks are. I've been in that situation many times. And when I look back, I always think, man, I should have known or I should have had the initiative to, to figure it out or something. But sometimes you just don't know what to do. And, you know, and so I, I think it's important as leaders to make sure that we try to provide as much of that as possible to our teammates. Now, the other two, the meaning and the impact, I don't want to emphasize those too much because in a perfect world, that would be great, man. If everything we did had meaning and, and significant impact. But a lot of times, you know, I had an old friend to say, we, we're just making the donuts, right? We're just coming in in the morning and we're just doing whatever it is we got to do. And it's just part of the job to keep the, the train on the tracks. And there's it, there's no not a whole lot of meaning, but it's important to the greater mission of the organization. But it's just nothing. You don't walk out of the, at the end of the day thinking, man, that was a really good brief that I gave or something. It's just like, yeah, I gave another brief. And then um, the impact, wouldn't that be great, you know, that we make a difference? And I think we can make that impact on people ourselves and our sphere of influence by doing the right thing and setting a good example and all that. But sometimes our jobs, our tasks aren't going to have worldwide impact. But don't let that get you down. You know, every, what is it, think globally and act locally. You know, just do the right thing and, and, and other stuff will follow. But, yeah, so um, I would say dependability structure are very important. Meaning impact are great, but sometimes they, they're just not there in our in our daily tasks. And I've I've asked you this question before. I'm going to ask you again. And who are some of the leaders that you really want to emulate, and why do you choose those those particular leaders? What characteristics do they have that draw you to them so much? Yeah, um, one one of my favorites is Colin Powell. Remember him? He retired as the chairman, joined Chiefs, and then he went on to be. Uh, uh, Secretary of State, he recently passed away. And I, I learned a lot from his books 
And, you know, he's got a list of leadership traits that I, I keep in my notebook or, or leadership um, tenants or advice or something. I remember one of, one of my favorite is when, you're, when your subordinates quit bringing you their problems, you've quit being their leader. And I remind myself that all the time when I, you know, right at the end of the day, you're ready to call it a day and some of you walk in, hey, you got an issue here. You know, you're, you're a knee jerk. Like, ah, man, you know, it's all of it. But then you think, no, they're coming to you because they're relying on you because you're their leader. So Colin Powell was great. And he's very low key guy, very humble guy. You know, I never worked with him. I never met him in person, but I've never heard anybody. I've never heard anybody say a bad thing about that man. So, um, I, yeah, he just immediately pops to mind. And, and I think these leadership traits, I think Admiral Craven has some great books as well. And yeah. I, I, I think that um, a lot of these leadership skills, they bleed over into every part of our life, our personal life, um, our professional lives. And that's what's good about these leaderships. It keeps us goal focused on our personal and professional growth in a lot of ways. Um, Let me tell you a quick Admiral McRaven story. So I, worked, I served briefly with him. We were on an exercise overseas and uh, he rolled in after us and took charge. You know, we had somebody in charge and then he came in and, and was a senior guy. And I still remember he came into the room and he just was in charge immediately. You knew he was the man. And he walked around and shook every one of our hands, introduced himself, went to the head of the table. And the first thing he asked us about was our sleep plan. And I was just like, what? And he, his concern was that we were getting enough sleep so that we were going to do a pretty, pretty dangerous mission. It was just a training exercise, but he wanted his team sharp. And uh, as a young Marine, I was like, yeah, I'll sleep when I'm dead. You know, I, I, you don't need to sleep. But he's probably the guy that got me really focused on taking care of myself. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a huge Admiral McCraven fan. And, you know, read that book, Make Your Bed. Start with that one. That's a, and I know you've read it. But I, I read it, got it for my kids, bought it for a bunch of Marines. You know, it's just. Well, hey, you know, I'm glad we only have like five more minutes left. But I have to tell you this. Can you give me a little bit of uh, uh, Admiral McCraven's background? So that people have a little context to what he's achieved, but also, um, but if you could go ahead and relate the story about um, about making your bed, I think it's a, a good way to start your day. That's for sure. Yeah, and, well, what, and, and the significance of it. Yeah, he, he retired as a, a commander of Special Operations Command. He's a Navy SEAL, and just went through his career as doing Navy SEAL stuff, going out and doing dangerous things. And uh, he was fortunate later on in life to just have some very key jobs including he was in charge of the planning uh for the uh, osama bin laden raid and, and that's kind of what i think that was really what brought him into the limelight probably against his wishes but then he went on to the uh, four-star rank uh, highest rank possible in the, in the armed forces and then went off to be the president of the university of texas so just a great american but yeah so he wrote a book called, he made a speech at University of Texas, uh, a, a graduation speech, and, and he came up with a, about 10 different things that he learned while he was doing his Navy SEAL training and, uh, and how, how those apply to real life. And the first one was make your bed. And I love this because the last time I didn't make my bed, I was in second grade. And uh, I didn't make my bed. I went to school. I got a call. I uh, had to go to the principal's office and said, hey, your dad said to go home. He's waiting for you. I walked home. There was my dad. He, he had popped back in the house for something, and he said, make your bed. And so I made my bed. I missed lunch that day because it was during lunch. 
and I've made my bed ever since. And what Admiral McRaven will tell you is that you make your bed and you do it neatly, and right away, first thing in the morning, you've you've accomplished something, and it gives you that feeling like today's going to be a good day. I've already accomplished a simple task, and then you go on and you accomplish another task, and then another task, and you break that day into bite-sized chunks, and at the end of the day, you you've accomplished quite a lot. Yeah, I I really like that because he's he's basically saying every single day you should try to complete these tasks, but it's going to make you grow as a person every day. So every day when you close your eyes, you've accomplished more than the day before and you build on that success, which I think you've done in your, in, in your life, Sean. And that's why I love having you on here. And my, my part of my plan and I, uh, is I'll have you on here every once in a while and talk about different leadership tidbits because you always have so much insight. And I really appreciate you being here today. Um, it's just been a, a great pleasure to interview you again. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you, Faye. I really, I always enjoy talking to you, man. Every time my cell phone rings and I see your name on there, it brings a smile on my face. So I'm happy to come back and right up until I wear out my welcome. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We, I really, really appreciate it. If you like the podcast, put a, give a thumbs up. And uh, in the meantime, keep learning. And I have a wonderful guest coming up in the next several weeks. And Thank you so much for joining me today. Take care.